Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Carrie Gino explores Advent in the Gospel of Luke. And now, here's Carrie. Let's come, let, let us come and adore him. Let's open in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning to worship your majesty and praise your wonderful name. We give you all the glory. And we thank you for your amazing grace and salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ. May we all be filled with your love this morning. Amen. <clears throat> I'd like to welcome everyone here and the thousands on Zoom. Is that right, Eve? No? Three? Okay. Uh, in the Gospel of Luke, oh, sorry, my topic this morning is the Gospel of Luke, Jesus, the Son of Man. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is presented as the Son of Man, or as Jesus calls himself in the source New Testament, the human being. Luke is presenting not just the human Jesus, but the Messiah, the God-man who is anointed by the Holy Spirit to be the link between heaven and earth. God in human form, weak, vulnerable, ordinary, yet extraordinary in his nature, filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit to be a perfect man and a perfect sacrifice. He was truly human, yet more than human, he was true God. He was veiled in a human body to live out a real human life and to die a real human death so that we could be reconciled to God. Here's the gospel of the Son of Man, Jesus the Man. His essential humanity is constantly being repeated throughout this gospel. 28 times he is referred to as the Son of Man, and 80 times in the combined Gospels. That was our Lord's favorite title for himself, one he used more frequently than any other name. The important historical insight is that the term Son of Man doesn't merely align him with humanity. It's probably taken from Daniel chapter 7. And if we read that chapter, we'll see that the Son of Man is a very exalted figure. Not just a human figure, but an exalted figure. The key, the key to this gospel, which forms a brief outline of the book, is found in chapter 19, verse 10. And this is a very well-known passage spoken by our Lord, in which he said of himself, The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. As Phil pointed out two weeks ago, that the Gospel of John quotes Jesus as being sent. The Gospel of Luke quotes Jesus as saying, I came. He was sent by the Father, and he came in obedience. The purpose of Christ coming into the world was to so identify with mankind that he could lift mankind out of the hopelessness of sin and depravity. The Gospel of Luke presents Jesus as God in the flesh. If God is going to reconcile man in a way 
that is going to bring eternal life and liberation to mankind, he has to come down to our level. We can sympathize with Christ hanging on the cross and understand the horrific agony that that brought to him. But little do we realize what it meant for Christ to become a man. In the Gospel of Luke is the unfolding of God's great love for humanity. He is so great that he stepped out of eternity and fit himself into a vessel of clay in order to redeem all of mankind. In other places, the Apostle Paul refers to him as the second Adam. Jesus Christ is the second Adam and as such has come to undo everything that the first Adam has done. The dilemma of humanity is a downward spiral spiral because of Adam's sin. Everything that is wrong about humanity today can be traced back to the fall in the garden. Jesus Christ has now come as a second Adam to correct that in such a way as to lift up humanity to where God wants us to be. Only through Jesus Christ, the second Adam, do we see any hope for humanity at all. It's interesting to see that throughout his life on earth, the Pharisees tried to steer Jesus in a different direction. Satan himself tried to do it. We remember the temptation in the wilderness. However, Jesus sets his face towards the city of Jerusalem. He had a purpose, and nothing is going to deter him from that purpose. All of humanity was riding on him fulfilling his purpose. The enemy is trying to throw up as much dust of confusion as possible so that people can't focus on the true purpose of Jesus Christ. The enemy can't get to him, but he sure can get to the people that Jesus is trying to win. And this phrase, came to, emphasizes that nothing about the coming of Christ was accidental. He had a purpose in coming, and he fulfilled that purpose. All of the steps of his life only served his purpose. Christ was in control of his life, and therefore in control of the circumstances. And we see this all the way through the gospel. Let's look again at that sentence. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. First, the Son of Man came. And in the beginning of the gospel, Luke tells us how he came into the human race. In the first section through chapter 4, verse 13, we have his entrance into his world stage. Luke records three things about him here. The first is his virgin birth. This is extremely important. Luke, who was a doctor and as such, put his physician seal of approval on this remarkable biological mystery. And he tells us that here one entered the race who was born of a virgin, because Mary had never known a man. Yet she had a son, and his name was called Jesus. The wonder of that mystery is told in the simple story that Luke presents to us. Then we have it linked with his human genealogy to the first Adam. 
He links the first Adam with the second Adam in this gospel of the Son of Man. Then Luke gives us the story of our, of our Lord's presentation in the temple at the age of 12 and the way he astounded the teachers with his ability to answer questions and his wisdom. Here is a revelation of amazing mental ability. His mind presented to us as perfect. Just as his body was perfect, sinless, through the virgin birth, and so he is revealed as having a mind that is perfect. Then Luke gives us the story of the temptation in the wilderness, where the Lord was revealed as perfect in the innermost recesses of his spirit. And that is indicated in advance by the announcement at his baptism. He was pronounced to be my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Then he came to seek. The first part of his ministry consists of seeking people out, moving into the heart of humanity, penetrating into the emotions, thoughts, and feelings of mankind. And finally, he moves on to save by means of the cross and his resurrection. Chapters 4 through 19 trace for us the first part of his ministry among people, and especially his journey towards Jerusalem. The record of this journey occupies chapter 9 through part of 19 and recounts incidences along the way. Finally, we read in Luke 19, verse 28, After Jesus said this, he traveled on ahead and went up to Jerusalem. And that marks the close of his ministry of penetrating into the character and nature of mankind and the beginning of his work to save mankind. It introduces the last section of the book in which he enters a city, comes to the temple, goes up to the Mount of Olives, then to Pilate's Judgment Hall, to the cross, to the tomb, and then to Resurrection Day. There was never a question in his mind of his purpose and goal in this life, to seek and save the lost. The objective of Christ coming into the world is very clear. It was clear in his own mind, and he constantly tried to make it clear in the minds of people and especially his disciples. He was not here to build an empire. He was not here to make a name for himself. He was here, however, to seek out the lost and to provide a way of salvation for each and every one. This was his priority. Not everyone would heed his warning. Not everyone would appreciate his gracious invitation that came from his lips. The word gospel, as we all know, means the good news. And Luke brings us this good news of Jesus Christ coming to seek and to save those who are lost. And Jesus comes in such a way as to deal with the problem from his perspective. We don't understand many things about God. But this is one assurance that we have. As Christians, we have become assured that Jesus Christ came into the world with the single purpose of seeking and saving the lost. And that he accomplished it to such an extent that we can come back into his family. Nothing makes us rejoice more than this. We are now part of the family of God, 
because of Jesus Christ. For the non-Christian, there is hope for you. No matter how wrong things seem to be in your life, Jesus Christ came for the single purpose of providing for your salvation. And your salvation is not in this world. It's not in religion. It is only in Jesus Christ. The great joy of your heart will be connecting with the one who came to seek and to save the lost, just like you and just like me. We should note some very remarkable similarities between the Gospel of Luke and the letter to the Hebrews. The message of Hebrews declares the amazing fact that Jesus Christ became a man in order to enter man. The Gospel of Luke, we trace the coming of one who at last penetrates and enters the spirit of people, the place of mystery. And he rips the veil, opening it up, so that we might discover ourselves and the mystery of our being and be fulfilled. And that is what mankind everywhere is desperately looking for. That is what we're all striving for. But we have lost the key. Until that key is placed back in our hand again by the Son of Man who came to reveal and redeem mankind. In the closing chapters, we learn a remarkable thing. Luke chapter 23, verse 44 to 45. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. So why was the curtain torn? Because the Holy of Holies was now opened up for the first time to the gaze of mankind. When the Son of Man died, God ripped the veil wide open. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 to 20 tells us, Therefore, fellow believers, as you have the freedom, boldness, and openness of speech for entering the holiest of holies by means of the blood of Jesus, by a brand new and living way, open for us through the curtain, that is, his body. And then we have the wonder of the resurrection morning and the account that Luke gives us of the two believers who were walking on the road to Emmaus when a third person appeared and he talked with them. Some believe that the two believers might have been a man and a woman. A masculine noun is used in the Greek, but the word could refer to a couple. And since they shared a home, it is speculated that Cleophas and his wife is mentioned in verse 18. On the amazing, all the amazing things that he said as he opened the scripture to them concerning Christ and what had been predicted of him. They said afterward, when they knew who he was, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? A burning heart is a heart caught up with the excitement and glory of a fulfilled humanity. The mystery is revealed. The holy of holies has been entered. And this is where we stand now. The mystery of every human heart is open to anyone who opens their own heart to the Son of Man, to the one who penetrates the depths of the human spirit 
and from there reestablishes that relationship with God, which makes a person what God intended people to be. Hebrews 10, verse 21 to 23. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for he who promised is faithful. All the possibilities of a fulfilled humanity is available to anyone now in whom the Spirit of Christ dwells. All that we want to be, we can be, in terms of love and good works. And that sums up the strange mystery of the ages, answering all the questions that have been raised by philosophers and thinkers about the mystery of our race. Why do we act the way we do? Where are we heading? What's the aim of it all? Luke has unveiled to us in the gospel of the Son of Man, the man who unveiled mankind. There's a John Lennon song that is very popular at Christmas time, and it goes like this, and I'm not going to sing, so relax. <laughs> Thank you. And so this is Christmas, and what have you done? This song is made to make us feel guilty, and is very Old Testament. Not that we shouldn't be helping the needy all year round, but I'd like to rewrite the song And it goes like this. And so this is Christmas, and look what he's done. Luke chapter 2, verse 8 to 14, Christmas. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace to men on whom his favor rests. In today's language, we could say that our Savior was born in a barn, and it probably smelled like most barns. Almost certainly it was noisy, drafty, dirty, and uncomfortable. And from the moment of his first cry, Jesus fully experienced what it meant to be human. He knows what we go through. Philippians, excuse me, Philippians chapter 2 verse 6 to 7 says, that Jesus, being in very nature God, made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. How wonderful to know that he loves us that much. Jesus reveals the love of God in his tireless effort to woo people to himself, and such love was costly, the death of God's only son. They crucified him on a hill, and that was the cost 
of our redemption. Peter said in Acts, <clears throat> excuse me, Peter said in Acts chapter 2, verse 22 to 24, People of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was born a man, was a man, sorry, accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. If we look at the Bible, if we look in our Bibles at the page preceding the book of Matthew, we find that it says the New Testament. But actually, the birth of Jesus and his life on earth take place in Old Testament times. So when does the New Testament actually begin? When does God accept that the laws of the Old Testament have been fulfilled And because of Jesus, we have a New Testament. Luke chapter 24, verses 1 to 8. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. It's the resurrection that seals God's promise of a new covenant. The new covenant, or the New Testament, is a promise that God makes with humanity that he will forgive sin and restore fellowship with those whose hearts are turned towards him. And Jesus Christ is the mediator of the new covenant, and his death on the cross is the basis of that promise. Luke 22:20. 20. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. The new covenant was predicted while the old covenant was still in effect. The prophets Moses, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel all allude to the new covenant. And we read in Luke 24, 49-52, that a resurrected Lord tells the disciples, I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. And when he had left them out to the, when he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. The Old Testament law was kept perfectly by Christ. And all its penalties against God's sinful people were poured out on Christ. So the law is now, the law is now clearly not the path to righteousness. Christ is. 
The ultimate goal of the law is that we would look to Christ, not law-keeping, for our righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Romans 10, verse 4. The old covenant (coughs) was the law. The new covenant is the blood of Jesus. Which one are you under? If we're no longer under the old covenant but the new, what is the will of God for our lives? And Phil read this from the Gospel of John two weeks ago. John 6, verse 37 to 40. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. <clears throat> for I have come down from heaven, not to do my, my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. <clears throat> and this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. In verse 39 of the final chapter of Luke, Jesus offers the disciple proof positive that he has risen. He wants us to have that same proof. He wants to prove that he is our friend and God is on our side. The basic sin of Adam and Eve was doubting God's love and friendship. Satan persuaded them that God was not their friend and that the fruit of the tree of knowledge was forbidden because in eating it they would become as wise as God. He convinced them that God was not trustworthy. The Old and New Testaments are the records of God's attempts ever since to convince us that he is our friend and that we can trust him. How much does God love us? Perhaps the best sermon I've ever read says it best, and it's very short, and it goes like this. A certain medieval monk announced he would be preaching the next Sunday evening on the love of God. As the shadows fell and light ceased to come through the great cathedral windows on that Sunday, the congregation gathered. In the darkness of the altar, the monk lit a candle and he carried it to the crucifix. First, he illuminated the crown of thorns. Next, he illuminated the two wounded hands. Then he illuminated the marks of the spear wound. In the hush that fell, he blew out the candle and he left the cathedral. There was nothing else to say. The love of God is Jesus' life given for us. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, and we've been reminded of your miraculous birth. And as we leave this place, may we go in your peace, may we live in your grace, may we radiate your light. Amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you're in the Timmins area, or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.